there was a design review with Steve Jobs. So Johnny Ive is head of design at Apple and has been for a long time. Yes. And so when, when Steve Jobs was alive, he was doing a design review. And Steve was very harsh on, on the team. And Johnny afterwards said, why did you have to be so harsh on the team? And Steve said to him, well, why didn't you tell them that this wasn't nearly good enough? Don't you agree with me that it wasn't? And Johnny said, yes, I agree with you, but I wanted to be kind to the team. And Steve shook his head, and he said, no, that's not the deal. The problem here is you're really vain. And Johnny was like, what do you mean? And Steve said, you wanted the team to like you, and you didn't care about whether they improved their work or not. And Johnny says, I was terribly cross because I realized he was right. Friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I gotta get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. They end up spending a lot of time ruminating. Hi, I'm Bob Sutton, and this is the Friction Podcast. Hi, everyone. Today is the last episode of the Friction Podcast. Kim Scott of Radical Candor fame joins us to talk about organizational friction. Her book, Radical Candor, is a New York Times bestseller. We recorded this one in front of a live audience of about 100 people at IDEO, the global design firm. And it was really fun. Towards the end of the podcast, you'll hear that we take some questions from the audience. We've cut out the audience questions, and instead you'll hear Kim Scott repeat the question. This is Friction Live. Okay, so it's great to see you all. We'll have Kim up here in a minute. Before um, we get Kim up here, I want to give a special thanks to IDEO. IDEO is a global design firm. Um, I think I said that properly. It used to be a little tiny place in Palo Alto, but now it's a global design firm. And, uh, when, and uh, my history with IDEO, I'm not going to go into massive detail, but I looked it up. Um, on April 7th, 1994, so I've, so I've got uh, two of my children here, and only one of them was born at that point even. Anyhow, so um, I walked into David Kelly's office with a doctoral student named Andy Hargadon, and I said, I want to study you. We want to do an ethnography, and David was very generous. He gave us the phone list, which had about 50 names on it. Um, 15 of them, I think, were named David. There's something called homosocial reproduction, where you hire people like yourself. Anyhow, and he, he, said, um, he said, you can talk to anybody you want and stay as long as you want, and I still haven't left. I'm an IDEO fellow, so I do appreciate the hospitality. All right, so let's move on to Kim Scott. So um, Kim Scott is going to talk to us in particular about her background, in particular about her book, Radical Candor. So speaking of plugs, go buy this someplace if you haven't bought it already. It's a great book. This is Kim Scott. All right. Let's, let's start out with the sort of question of, you know, basically, who are you? How did you get here? So, so you've written this great book, Radical Candor, which we're going to talk about, but why don't you Give us all a little background. So, so sure. what got you there? Sure. So 
I had a bunch of crazy experiences early in my career. I, it was very difficult for me to be a manager because I was, born, I was raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was born and bred for what I call in the book manipulative insincerity. I was not supposed, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. That was me. Uh-huh. And now all of a sudden it was my job to say it. And so early in my career, I had the following experience. I had hired this guy. I'm going to call him Bob. He wasn't you. Um, poor, poor old Bob. It's generic. So I had hired this guy, Bob, and I really liked Bob. He was smart. He was funny. He would do stuff like we're at one of those manager off-sites that everybody hates because you're wasting a lot of time on some stupid get-to-know-you game. But you don't want to be the one who says, I hate, to get, I hate the get-to-know-you game. So Bob said... I've got this really great idea. It's going to be super fast. We're all ready to do it. He said, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents used when potty training us. Weird but fast. Weirder yet, everybody remembered Hershey Kisses right here. Uh And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in the meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So anyway. He remembered it? He must have written it down. Yeah, he had a good memory for stuff like this. So he was charming. He was funny. That's why we like Bob. One problem with Bob, he was doing terrible work. Like he would hand stuff to me with shame in his eyes. Uh, this was puzzling to me because he had this amazing resume, and I, could, I learned later the problem was he was smoking pot in the bathroom every day, which maybe explained all that candy. But yes, anyway, have. I didn't know this at the time. And, and so instead, because I liked Bob and I wanted to be nice to him, instead of telling him this is not nearly good enough, I would say, Bob, you know, this is a great start. You're so awesome. You're so smart. You're so funny. We all love working with you, but... Maybe you could take another crack. And, of course, he never did, at, or maybe he took some other kind of crack. But he, <laughs> he never did. The stuff never got better. And after 10 months of this, the inevitable happened. And I, I realized if I didn't fire Bob, I was going to lose half okay. my team. And so when I sat down with Bob to tell him where things stood... When I finished the conversation, he pushed the chair back from the table, and he looked right at me, and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question is going around in my head with no good answer, Uh other than that I totally screwed up, he said, why didn't anybody tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And all of a sudden, I realized because I have failed to do my job properly and give him feedback Mm. in the way I should have, now, I was trying to be nice to him, and now I'm firing him, yeah, which is not so nice after all. And it was, it was probably the worst moment of my career, and that was probably the moment that I began thinking about radical, radical candor, candor and how to avoid making that mistake and also how to avoid helping other people make that mistake. When I was leading a big team at Google at one point and managing managers of managers, you know, like turtles, even though it's a flat organization, uh-huh. there's like 12 layers. Right. And, right. and yeah. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, the flat organization is a myth. And it was like watching a slow motion train wreck. It was like watching the Bob story over and over and, and, and feeling helpless. Well, and Google be- sort of has the Stanford culture. So at Stanford, we're kind of passive aggressive. Yeah. So, so that's what I call ruinous empathy. Ruinous empathy. Ruinous yeah. empathy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, and what, what is ruinous empathy? Ruinous empathy is what happens. And it ha- this is where 85% of mistakes get made. 
Ruinous empathy is what happens when you do show somebody you care personally about mm-hmm. them, and because you're so worried about their feelings, you fail to, sh- to challenge them directly. So, so, let's, so let's sort of stop here. Just, just a comment about um, Bob, since I can relate to It wasn't to, Bob. No, I, I, can, I can relate. Yeah, I've never had a real job, so I'm safe. But, but there's also a lesson in there about, about life, which is if you're going to be incompetent, don't be an asshole, because that's kind of helped Bob out. So, um, so, so let's, let's talk a little bit about radical candor, because although this is the friction podcast, and we'll talk about organizational friction eventually, um, I think that uh, we owe it to everybody in the audience, um, since I hope you've all read the book, but I'm going to assume nobody has. But so, read it this weekend, re- Yeah, read please. it this weekend, or at least buy it. Buy that's it. What, at least buy it. Um, <laughs> and write a review. That's right. A positive review. Reading can come later. Um, so, but sort of, why don't you give us sort of the high level, I mean, there's a, there's a, the book is actually summarized in a two-by-two two table quite well on the cover. Sure. So why don't you sort of walk us through the basics, uh, the basics of your argument in the book? So super high level, radical candor is the ability to show that you care personally at the same time that you challenge somebody directly. So very simple. And it sounds like who doesn't care, who doesn't care personally? Nobody starts out their career thinking, I don't give a shit about people, so I'm going to be a great leader. That's not how it works. But somehow, around the time we're 18, 19, 20 years old, we are at that moment in our lives when our egos are very fragile and our personas are beginning to solidify. And right at that moment, somebody comes along and says, be professional. And for a lot of people, that gets translated to mean leave your real self, leave your emotions, leave your humanity, leave everything that's best about you at home and come to work like some kind of robot. And so that causes a lot of us not to bring our whole selves to work, to fail on the care personally dimension. And then there's challenge directly. This is what I call the willing to piss people off dimension of radical candor. And The problem here begins actually much earlier. When you're 18 months old, you first learn to speak, and your your parents, raise of hands, how many of you had a parent who said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all to you, right? Everybody, in every culture. Not my parents, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And you're so nice. Somehow it worked. And and now, now, now all of a sudden it's your job to say it. And it's hard. It's hard to undo training that has been pounded into you since you're 18 years old, 18 months old. But if you can do both, it's radical candor. When you fail to show you care, but you do challenge directly, that's obnoxious aggression, also known as the asshole quadrant. But I don't want you to use the framework to judge yourself or other people. Use it to move conversations in a better direction. Uh, and then when you do care, but you fail to challenge, that's mm-hmm. ruinous empathy. And when you fail on both dimensions at the same time, manipulative insincerity. Okay, so to me, getting to radical candor sounds so great, but in real life, it's so hard. So I mean, hard. To, so to walk this line between not being, to use my term, not being an asshole right. and not being kind of like a, a, a really sweet doormat. Yeah. So, so we're going to get to how you do that, but let's kind of start with ruinous empathy. Yeah. Why is it so bad? And, and I want to make sure you tell the story about the Russian dog. <laughs> so, so Kim was a, a Russian literature major as an yes, undergraduate, exactly. right? Exactly. So, she, so there's, there's all this Russian examples that run through her book on, in, on top of her thing. So tell us about, and then, and then I'm going to kind of push you because, and, and, and I actually, actually I wrote uh, Dan Pink. So Dan Pink's a well-known kind of management guru type. 
And he also named Kim's book an elevator ride. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was just tough love. And tough love became radical candor between the first and 14th floor with Dan Ping. So, he's, and so it's sort of a great story. But so, so tell us a little bit about Ruinous Empathy. Let's start there. I think what you need to do is let go of the, cons- of the desire to be liked and let go of the desire to be popular and focus on caring about that person. There's a huge difference between okay. worrying about being liked and, and actually putting someone else's better interests ahead of your own discomfort because it's uncomfortable to tell the person. Yes, it is. And you want to tell them in a way that they can hear it and in a way that they can act on it. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to think you're a jerk. They might very well think you're a jerk for a little while. I mean, hopefully not forever. <laughs> very often, there's, there's a, a big difference in what you'll do if you're really worried about somebody else's best interest, okay. if you really care about their... Like if, you're, if it's your, you have some children in the audience, I've got right? two, yes, and I'm sure and th- I'm sure your father has been radically candid at times. Like yes, you, have to yes. teach them, you have to teach them some stuff for their own good, right? That, it's basically that. That's the idea. But, okay, so let's, so let's dig into this a little bit more, and I'm going to ask you some other questions, and we will get to friction eventually since this is, cool. it the, is friction. Friction. It is the friction podcast. What is fr- friction? Friction, ruinous empathy causes a lot of friction. So let's hold that thought okay. just, for, just for a minute. But, but So it is funny, since I have two children and a wife in the audience, um, and I also have had lots of students over the years, yeah. one thing that I've sort of noticed is that for some students – they just beg for it. Yeah. Like, I even used the name of one of my former students now. Liz Gerber, tenure professor at Northwestern. She would... That she demanded it. She would yell at me when I wasn't <laughs> critical enough. Then I have other students mm-hmm. who, if I just say a little bit negative, they just crumble. Yeah. So, so in real life, you're going to have yeah. teams you have... So how do you get to the point... And, and don't tell me the answer is just empathy because, like, no. for an idea, we could just say empathy. Yeah. So, 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 it's not. So, it's not. It's so, a, actually, empathy will trip you up here. Okay. Especially with the ones who crumble. Because if you're too empathetic, you'll back off your challenge and okay. you won't be clear enough with them. So I think that the key thing to remember is that radical candor gets measured not at my mouth but at your ear. Okay. Not at your mouth but at my ear if you're talking to me. And that means you've got to adjust you got to say it differently for different people. So if somebody reacts with great emotion, I think the key thing to remember is to react to the emotion with uh-huh. compassion. Don't pretend like it's not happening. Just eliminate the phrase, don't take it personally, from your vocabulary. Because it's natural. Like, we spend more time at work than in any other thing we do in life, except maybe sleeping and probably not. Okay. And so... And so... Of course, when we screw up at work, we take it personally. It's upsetting. And so it's okay if somebody gets upset. What you want to do is react to the emotion with compassion. You want to move up on the care personally dimension without backing off your challenge. Okay, so... so uh, you look dissatisfied. No, no, no. I'm just curious. So, so there's a couple of things going on in my head. One of them is so you actually have a Harvard MBA, don't you? I do. Yeah, and, and so we've got Huggy Rao in the audience. He's going to talk later and... It, and I know a lot of Harvard and Stanford MBAs. In the, so you're, you're making this argument that, that emotion and being in yeah, tune, yeah, that that's yeah. a really important part <laughs> they of leadership. Didn't, they didn't teach me that at they Harvard. They didn't teach you that at Harvard <laughs> Business School. So, so, so is this – and in fact, 
I'm in the field of organizational behavior. A lot of times when you talk to MBAs, they tell you their OB classes are just bullshit. Yeah. Except they come back 20 years later and they say, gee, uh, maybe yeah, they weren't so worthless. Yeah, it was actually really useful. So, 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 so what do you do to this sort of you know, the robotic, managerial, rational mindset? What, what do you do to get people to the point where that they think that th- that this it emotion, actually matters? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I was when I was at early at Google, we had to hide the Harvard MBA students because if they were interning there, they and, and Larry or Sergey found out there were Harvard MBAs, they would have not have gotten jobs. There's a Harvard so, MBA who uh, worked at Google for years who we, was, yeah, was, we, was yeah, agreeing we, with us. We, we hid, we'll, we'll we protect hid our identity. Yeah. <laughs> we hid, so we hid them. And, and so, so one day I was talking to uh, one of these Harvard MBA groups, and, and they were very disappointed to be talking to me because they really wanted to talk to Sergey. I'm like, look, you want a job? You talk to me. You want to not have a job? You talk to Sergey. So anyway, <laughs> and, and, and they, they asked me, like, what can we do to be successful at Google? And they, I could tell they were expecting some sort of analytical mm-hmm. response. And I said, could you just show up to work like human beings? And then I felt kind of ridiculous. Like, what were they supposed to do, show up like chipmunks or something? <laughs> like? uh, and 10 years later, I bumped into one of, one of the people in that, in that class, and he said, you know, that was the most useful thing anybody told me that first year at Google. Like, we totally forget that our humanity is actually an asset and that we should, we should bring it to bear to, our, to, to, to doing great work. MBAs really do grind this out of you. Okay, so let's shift gears to frictions. Huggy Rao and I are really interested in this notion that, uh, that um, and we learned it from our book on scaling up excellence, that we talked to all these managers who are involved in scaling and talk about how hard it was to get things done in organizations and the bigger and more bureaucratic they got, the harder and harder it was to get things done. So we're sort of on a learning adventure, including this podcast, to... Uh, discover things about um, friction. And oddly, we have three Stanford or Harvard um, Business School graduates and no Stanford Business School graduates. So, I don't, so we have you, Maybe Michael Deering. Out there. And there you go. We got a Stanford. Oh, God. No, no, no. But, but I'm talking about who are on the podcast. Oh, okay. okay. So, so with that as background, uh, so when you think of, of, uh, of, um, of, what, of radical candor, mm-hmm. What's the relationship between that and the problem of organizational friction of things being kind of hard, harder to get done than they should? I'm going to give you a good definition of friction, which, which, which is delivered to me by an HBS professor. I don't want to malign HBS. I did learn some great things Oh, good. There. Yeah, uh, they, so they, Richard, they have great cl- yeah, crafting education. They do. So, so Richard Tedlow Ooh, yeah. would talk about the gravitational pull of organizational mediocrity. And that, to me, is a pretty good definition of friction. The gravitational pull of organizational organizational mediocrity. mediocrity. It's what happens as companies get big. And you you can use it. I bet he'll let you. And and I think a big part of what... What causes that gravitational pull as as organizations get bigger as as people don 't know each other as well they 're far more apt to be ruinously empathetic huh. and that creates friction because there 's a meeting before the meeting there 's a meeting after the meeting. everything takes six times as long as it should because nobody 's saying what they really think, and nobody 's pointing out problems, so problems aren 't getting fixed. And that ultimately is really unsatisfying, I think, and kind of actually infuriating 
after a while. It's like getting caught in traffic. Okay, so, so let's sort of take that problem. That's really interesting because to me what you're talking about is there's all this backstage stuff that goes on that, that it just takes so much time. In fact, I'm thinking Huggy Rouse in the front row that, that he had me speak at an organization that's almost across the street and has gotten smaller and smaller since we visited them 10 years ago. And they'd have a pre-meeting meeting, yeah. then the pre-meeting, then the meeting, and then the meeting afterwards – and then something would finally get done by two people who ignored everything? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, so when you have that, and it is funny because a lot of that was um, ruinous empathy. Yeah. They didn't want to, you're afraid. Uh, the bigger an organization gets, the, the higher the, the cost of pissing somebody off. Okay. Or at least the perceived cost, uh, the, the risk. And, and so what you need to do is create an, an environment which makes more evident the risk of not pissing people off. Huh. Now, I'm not saying that you should intentionally try to piss people off, but Colin Powell says leadership sometimes mean, means being willing to, to piss, not to be a jerk. There's a big right. difference between being a jerk and pissing somebody off. So, let, so I was rereading your book this morning, and I was really sort of struck by that. So to me, one of the implications of that is that uh, – is that as to be to be an effective boss, and I like to use the word boss, by the way. Good, because it was a hard decision. I, I, well, I, I like it. it but but um, you're implying that to be a, a boss, an effective boss, you actually need a pretty thick skin because you're doing things that make people cry. This yeah. is why we read your book. Yeah. Yeah. That piss people off. Yeah. Sometimes they'll yell at you. Sometimes they'll get mad and quit. Yeah. All so, that's going to happen. So... so so how, how did you develop it? How do, you, you do executive coaching now, too. Yeah. How, how, if you're working with narcissists, a, a characteristic of narcissism, not to go into politics, is that, is that narcissists are incredibly thin-skinned. They're charismatic. Yeah. So and any tiny insult. Any tiny insult. They d- yeah. They, uh, they react with... So, so, how, so given that this is just, to me, it's, 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 it's a condition for success for radical candor. Thick skin, yeah. To so be how, confident. You have to be confident. And so I think part of it, part of it is, and this is why I think ru- that empathy is not the answer. Empathy is often kind of a short-term emotional reaction uh-huh. to something. And I think what you need to be able to do is to look past the momentary sting that is going to be caused by whatever it is mm-hmm. you have to say. And look at the bigger picture. Like, how is this going to help the person get what they really want? How are you, by helping this person grow, how are you helping them take a, a step in the direction of their dreams? Mm-hmm. Like, you're not going to get to your dreams by being cuddled. You're going to get there by being pushed a little bit. And, and how are you going to learn if you don't know when you've... We, we learn from our mistakes, actually. And you want to celebrate the successes, too. You should give, give more praise and criticism. Oh, okay. but I, I'm still not... You're not th- convinced. Not tried, I don't think we're quite there on, on developing a thick skin. But. Develop, well, I mean, for me, part of what developing this thick skin was was just taking the longer view. Just realizing... So once you shift... You shift time to the longer perspective. It, it hurts less because you know, well, for you and the person you're dealing with, there'll be less pain in the future. I kn- yeah, I know that this it's, person it's is the dog be, analogy. This, yeah, this person is going to be grateful to me one day. I think another thing that helped me a lot develop the thick skin was just stories. Just thinking about th- every time I remember that Bob story, uh-huh. and I'm tempted not to say something. 
I realized this is going to hurt way worse later if I don't, if I don't take, would I rather have a little pain now or a right. lot of pain later? Would I, would Bob rather have a little pain now or a lot of pain later? Like I'm going to choose a little pain now. And that's, I don't know if that's thick skin, but it helped me. And then another thing that helped was to think about times when somebody said something to me that stung in the moment, uh-huh. but was beneficial for years to come. Okay. So I want to take a little turn. We actually had a, a little short exchange on Twitter this week when we don't usually do yes. that but it was about it was about strategic temper tantrums and i have a lifelong interest and it might be to justify some of my own bad behavior um in strategic temp- temper tantrums and uh, so real quickly in one of the other podcasts we discussed some research that shows that uh, when basketball coaches lose their temper and start yelling at halftime very good research by barry Stahl and others at berkeley they do it all the time it doesn't work but if they do it every now and then it actually helps right. and 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 um because you can compare what, the, what happens in the first half to the second half. So, so and, and you were saying with, with alpha types, yeah. it's especially effective. So, so, so how would you think temper tantrums should be used strategically? So I, th- I think that the, it is really psychologically healthy people and super confident people have a natural tendency to dismiss all the bad news and only hear good stuff about themselves. And sometimes to break through, <laughs> to break through that sort of uh, psychological barrier. That sort of and, shell and, of alpha yeah. male arrogance is yeah. that you're sort it's of getting to? It's not only males, unfortunately. Oh, alpha, okay. Women, alpha, women can be alpha oh. too. Uh, so, so you you got to work pretty hard to bust through it. So, and this is what I call in the book the perilous boundary between radical candor and obnoxious aggression. Because to an onlooker, it may look like you're uh-huh. being an asshole. So there's a really good, in the Lost interview, there's a really good clip with Steve Jobs where, where somebody is asking him, what did you mean when you said your work is shit? You know, and, and for most of us, that, that, would, be, that, would, be, that, that would be clearly yeah, asshole. Not, yes. and, and Steve's first response is kind of an asshole response. He's like, well, what do you think it meant? It meant your work is shit. And then, and, but then he goes on to explain, you know, when you work with really good people, and you can imagine he was surrounded by mm-hmm. some, by, you know, some basketball player t- types, and some people with pretty confident, pretty alpha confidence and so he said when you're working with really good people and they know they're really good sometimes it's your job to tell them in a way that leaves no room for ambiguity but also reassures them that you have confidence in their ability when their work isn't nearly good enough and that's a hard thing to do and it is hard it can be really there was one guy who worked for me, who was supremely confident, mm-hmm. with good reason. He was an extremely talented individual. And he kept making a particular mistake. And, and it was really going to trip him up in his career. And I remember going into a meeting with him and thinking, if he's not in tears by the end of this meeting, I won't have gotten through. Okay. And That's radical candor. Yeah, or maybe obnoxious aggression. I mean, I was right on that perilous boundary. But I knew I had to get through to him or else he was going to wind up getting fired if he kept doing this thing, and despite his great talent. And, and sure enough, by the end of the meeting, he was sobbing in earnest. And we're, we're still in close cut. We still work together wow. today. Okay, yeah. so, that's, so. A, that's a good example. But in that example, and in fact all the ones in the book, to me where it really works is when you understand the context of the long-term relationship and where you're going. Sometimes in life that isn't possible. Yeah. But when you can do it, I think that's nirvana. Okay, so we've just got a few minutes left before we open it up for questions, start thinking of questions. Um, so 
First of all, I just wanted to have a general conversation about uh, what I called organizational friction, and earlier this week right. you called organizational bullshit. Right. And, and there's actually a great example, almost right away, that uh, so you're good friends with Sheryl Sandberg, yeah. and she said, come to Google, let's get you a job. And she had to do 27 interviews. <laughs> 27 interviews, which it, you will find out in a podcast with uh, Hagi Rao that Laszlo Bach eventually got rid of this Eventual, practice. Eventually it changed. So, so that was, sounds to me like organizational friction. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of fr- And in fact, they made me guess my, my, school, my SAT score, and I didn't remember because that was 30 years ago, and... And then, I, and then I had to look it up, and luckily I had lowballed it. But, but then they accused me of lying. I was like, you told, I mean, it was just really, yeah. Sounds was, like a really healthy yeah, selection was, process. I was so mad. I was so mad at the end of the, uh, that I almost didn't take the job at Google. I'm glad I did, uh, but yeah. But so, but so in general, when you think about organizational bullshit, um, what's, what's the stuff that, like, really, if you could just get rid of it, yeah, that yeah. Because you, you've been in a lot of different places in a lot of different roles. You haven't gone through your whole resume, but it's sort of yeah. amazing. Apple, Google, Dropbox, all sorts of different places. Great companies. Yeah, so I think one of the, one of the th- consistent things that I saw in a bunch of different organizations that's really frustrating is when people try to substitute process for relationship. And so classic example of this is most performance review systems. So the, the goal of the performance review system is to make sure that people are getting regular feedback. But somehow what happens all too often is that people quit giving feedback and they only do the performance review and then it just like balloons into this ridiculous situation. And even, even at Google, which is not, doesn't have tons of process, mm-hmm. they work hard on it. Uh, but by the time I left, some people had because there were such penalties associated with bad feedback in the official performance review system, people would have their own personal private feedback. Oh, classic. <laughs> yeah, and then there's so, – so not all, now there's two processes that everybody's having to maintain, the official one that is full of lies and then the unofficial one that, that bears so it's, it's some like, resemblance yeah, the, to the, the, the truth. The two books. Yeah. It's, a, it's the same thing. And books. meanwhile, like because all this time is going into – writing all this nonsense down, people don't just sit down and talk to each other. And that's a disaster. Well, also in that process, what you're also describing is it's so burdensome to, to, to do all this bookkeeping and everything that you don't, have that you don't actually have time to, to build a relationship. And uh, there's yeah. some organizations I know, for example, the one I work where, where – Work at where the process gets so burdensome yeah. that you hope as a manager you have time for human contact, but you end up just filling out forms and fighting the bureaucracy. So it gets yeah, to be ugly. Yeah, that's a disaster. Okay, so we've got a minute, and then we're going to open it up for questions. Um, I just we, there's two questions we like to ask. I ask one version of them. This is the magic wand question. Okay. So if you had a magic wand, and you think of, of sort of all the organizations you know, and you could just put sort of like some kind of pixie dust and get them. To stop doing one thing, what would it be? I think eliminate the CC on emails. Like as, as, as <laughs> that's a, really as, specific. As a way, the the amount of email traffic. So this was very interesting. At Google, I got thousands of emails uh-huh. a day, and then I went to Apple, where everything was a secret. Yeah, everything's so a no, secret. And I would I, I would go through whole days and get like one or two emails, and it was it was a miracle of productivity. 
so, like, like getting people to actually talk and do work and, like, put their phones in their pocket and shut their computers. So, so it is interesting. I mean, and we, we don't have time to go into this, but, but one of the dilemmas that Huggy and I have talked about a lot is this question of having, whether you have an open system where everybody can be involved in, in the discussion. But, but the problem with that is that everybody's allowed to interrupt everybody else and everybody oh. is allowed to have a say. And then you have to, like, reply with all these polite replies. It's like a, it's a disaster. Okay, so we're, so we're for secrecy and, no, no, and specialization. I'm, no, I'm, not for, I'm not for secrecy. You can put it all somewhere that uh-huh. it's push-pull. If you want to go put it all in a repository and uh-huh. somebody has time to go read all that shit, more power to them. <laughs> but don't, like, drive it into their inbox where it's unavoidable. Okay, well, well I, I like that. So you, that's, that's sort of like Microsoft yeah, clutter. Very, that, yeah, you, you, have, you have that model. Okay, so I think that was a good answer. We, we have 19 minutes for questions, which Excellent. is fabulous. So oh, we've already we've got, got a hand. We got oh, my God. So right. Elizabeth Woodson in the back, yes. So the, I think the question, correct, make sure I got it right, is when you're not the powerful one in the organization, how can you, how can you drive towards radical candor when you may not be in a culture that embraces it? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So, so this is a, a good question because, it, you know, uh, giving radical candor to your boss, for example, yeah. can be a pretty tough thing to do. Yeah, no, and it is, it, it, it is risky. So I think the, the basic things you can do are this, if, you're, if you don't have power, are the same things that you ought to do if you do have power. You should start by soliciting feedback. Like, don't dish it out until, until you can prove that you can take it. And... Some specific tips on soliciting feedback, especially, by the way, if you're a woman working for a man, you got to drag it out of them because men are more likely to pull their punches with women and not to give the radical candor. And that puts you at a, they don't mean to put you at a disadvantage. They're trying to be nice or gentlemanly or something, but they are putting you at a disadvantage. So you got to drag it out of them. Regardless, you got to drag it. And, one thing you can do to drag it out is to come up with a go-to question. If all you do is say, may I have some feedback? I can already tell you what the answer is. No, everything's fine, right? Because they don't want to give you the feedback. So you've got to come up with a way of asking. One of the questions I like to ask is, is there anything I could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? However, this woman that I coached, Krista Quarles, the CEO of OpenTable, said, I would never ask that question. What I like to say is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. So there's a lot of different... A lot of different ways to ask the question. It just has to feel like you. I, I, I like that question. Yeah, yeah, I like, it's a good question. Okay, speaking of questions, we've got a question over here. All right. So the, the question is, before I went in to talk to Bob to give him this feedback, would I have come up with a clear plan in my head of what I was going to say, or would I, would I have just dived in? Is that right? So, yeah, if I try to plan too much... Uh, a feedback yep. conversation, then I will get myself into such a state of paralysis that I won't be able to be, I'll come across like some kind of robot. So what I try to do when, I, when I'm going into a conversation that I know is going to be hard, I'll try to jot down like in one or two words, three or four bullet points, the stuff I must, the big picture ideas that I must get across. And, and then I'll start talking and adjust. So if somebody is blowing me off, then I know I have to be more and more clear, and it's going to feel to me like I'm being more and more harsh, 
like in the meeting with a guy who I knew I had to make him cry. Like, I'll brace myself <laughs> to be harsh, because some conversations you know you're going to have, not because I want, wanted to make him cry, but because I knew that if I wasn't really harsh, I wouldn't be getting through. So there, there, there's, there's also an element to this, and, and it kind of runs to me through your book and for other experienced bosses. I know that, that the kind of thing you're talking about, uh, the first time you do it, you're not going to be great at it. No. But... but but you will get better over time if you keep trying. And, and, and we didn't talk about firing people. We did yeah. a little bit in, Ugh, in the case of so Bob. So hard. And, and, and uh, it's the same thing with firing people that I'd imagine you got better over time as well. You definitely, you definitely do get better over time. But you also – one of the things that I've found that's most surprising about radical candor is that I, I often go in expecting some sort of terrible emotional reaction. I expect somebody is going to get really angry at me or start yelling at me or get super defensive. And at least half the time they're like, oh, thank you. Thank you. This is really – like immediately they're grateful. Sometimes it takes a week. Like with the guy who was crying, he didn't say thank you at the end of that conversation. But usually, more often than you expect – it goes better. And the reason why is that when you go in to give somebody critical feedback, your fear most of the time is that that person's going to think you're a jerk. And their fear is that you're pulling your punches, mm. that you're not telling them the whole story. And as soon as you realize that dynamic, it becomes way easier to be radically candid, which is kind of why I don't prepare myself for every possible terrible emotional outcome that could happen, because I'll freak myself out and I'll wimp out of saying anything. Because it's like, I wrote this book, Radical Candor, but the the other day, uh, our nanny put bacon bits on the salad and I hate bacon bits but I was afraid to tell her you know like it's hard it's a hard it's a hard it's, hard. it's a hard thing to do and so you gotta kind of lo- just do lots it lots of lots of hands here uh, in the front row so so I think that when when you get the silent seething you've you got to pull it out you got you got to figure out how to make that person give that seething a voice and the sooner you, if they're really seething, if they're really mad, they're more likely, if you let it, if you wait till they calm down, you're probably never going to get it. So when you sense that side, and you can sense it, right? And so I'm, I'm pretty oblivious sometimes, so I, I bet, might not be able I to see it. <laughs> I bet you can sense it. So that, you know, the body, oh, yeah, yeah. this is the reason to have these conversations, by the way, in person, because if so, the silent seething expresses itself, you know, in the person turns red or there's a, there's a blood vessel that's popping at the, you know, or something. So you say, you are mad. I see, and, and like call out the body. If you see the blood vessel, say you're, the blood vessel on the top of your head is pulsing. <laughs> that means you're mad. You can't tell me you're not mad. Or you're crossing your, like call out the body language and say, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're not mad. What does it mean? What does it mean that you're, you know, your face is turning red? Uh, okay, so who, who has, yeah, yeah. So, so the question is, the concept of radical candor sounds really one-directional, and when do you turn it into a conversation? I'm really glad you asked that, because if it's one-directional, it's more likely obnoxious aggression than radical candor. So it's got to be bi-directional. That's why I said you start by soliciting feedback. Don't, don't dish it out till you prove you can take it. And another thing that's really important, in addition to remembering that it gets measured not at your mouth but at the other person's ear, 
Another thing that's really important to do is, uh, is to, to realize that if you're not addressing, if you're not calling out the emotion that the other person is feeling and reacting with compassion to it, then you're not really having a conversation. I think a third thing to keep in mind is that radical candor is a gift in one of two ways. It's when it's criticism. It's either a gift because you're telling somebody that they've screwed up, that they've done something wrong, and they can fix it, or you're telling somebody that you think they've screwed up, but you're wrong, and you're open to the feedback and response that, in fact, you're wrong. This is why I call it candor, not truth. So, so there's something you actually, in this conversation, I don't think have emphasized enough about the radical candor that's, that's in the book repeatedly, mm-hmm. that another advantage of radical candor, since we're mostly talking about criticism, is when you criticize somebody uh, regularly and openly, when you give them a compliment, they actually believe you. Yes, they do. So, so I mean, I think that's something we maybe <laughs> should have emphasized throughout yeah. this, this session Conversation. because if I'm always kissing up to you, then that's yeah. kind of no information. It's not any information at all. And I think another thing that's dangerous about the way that a lot of people think about praise is they think that praise is the way you show you care and criticism is the way that you challenge. But right. good praise challenges people to do great work and good criticism shows you care. So both praise and criticism need to operate on both dimensions of radical okay. candor. So- what, uh, oh. So the question is, if you're, if you're working with somebody who crumbles at a hint of criticism, how can you help them develop enough resilience to hear it? And I think the most important thing you can do is start out by stating your intention to be helpful. I want to tell you something because I think you can fix it, and I want to help you fix it. And, and it's very hard for, and is, it, is now a good time? So ask them, like, maybe it's a terrible moment, so help find the moment. And usually when people see that the reason why you're telling them this thing is because you want to help them, then all of a sudden they open, they're a little bit more open to it. I think also being humble when you offer the, especially the criticism, but equally important with praise, to say, maybe I'm wrong about this. But I just want to share with you what I see, and I want to hear what you see. So that, that has a way of disarming the, uh, the sort of natural defensive reaction that we all feel when we, get, when we get criticized. Another thing that's really important to remember is not to make it about personality. You're trying to tell somebody something they can change, and it's, it's not impossible to change your personality, right, right. but it's pretty difficult. So, so you can use situation that, you know, in the meeting, when you said um, every third word, you sounded stupid, is a very different way to give some, to give some criticism than saying you're stupid. You're stupid, right? yeah. So there's a hand in the back, and I think that you're our last question, then I'm going to ask you a question. Yes. Yeah, so the question is, radical candor is sort of like journaling, because if you do it every day, it's going to help your, it's going to help you improve, it's going to help your organization improve, there's a big long-term ROI, but it takes a lot of discipline to start, so how do you convince people to start? It's a really good question. I found the things that work the best are, first of all, storytelling. Like that Bob story was so painful for me, and everybody who's ever been a manager or managed managers, like 
We all have our Bob story. And so often when I work with organizations, I'll tell my stories, and then I'll get them to tell their stories, and they all have them. And literally, when you tell stories, people's brains get on the same wavelength, and that can often cause enough energy to start getting people to, to be more radically candid. Another, another thing that is really, really helpful is just a shared vocabulary. A bunch of organizations, well, not a bunch, but some organizations I've worked with have printed out the framework, the two-by-two two, with radical candor, obnoxious aggression, ruinous empathy, and put that in conference rooms. And, and all of a sudden now when you and I are talking and I can say, Bob, I think you're being ruinously empathetic. Right, right, right. Then that makes it way easier for you to just lay it out. Or if I say something and maybe I've crossed, I've crossed that perilous boundary and you can say we've, we've moved out of radical candor into obnoxious aggression. And that just gives me an opportunity to apologize and correct. So those two things are really helpful what I have not found to be all that helpful is trying to measure everything because if you try to operationalize in the HR sense of the word impromptu conversations, um, it freaks people out. And they probably get bad measures. Yeah. Okay, so we've got about a couple minutes left, so I just, I, I'll, I'm going to take sort of the last question. So, so it, I, I, one thing I really like about uh, your book is in some ways you're using radical candor as a thread to sort of sneak in because the book's actually very detailed and goes to a lot of nuances, all these things that a great boss do. And, what, and you described Sheryl Sandberg yes. as, as your best boss. Yes. So it's sort of interesting. But one of the things that really struck me that so this is bringing in friction is you described how good Cheryl was at not wasting people's time. Oh, she did not waste a minute. So can, was... you, can you talk about what she did and in general? Because to me, that's the hallmark of what a great leader or a great teacher is, is somebody who has both the intention and the skill not to waste other people's time. Cheryl had a real knack for not waiting if things could be done right away. So she was a person who, would, who was very disciplined about giving feedback in the moment in two minutes. Like as soon as she didn't wait for a one-on-one, she would. So that's right. Why every time the, I ask her to endorse one of my books, I get a no. Like exactly. in about like in a about five a minutes, thirty seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not joking. She, uh, it's really, it's really impressive. Like, I wish I could do that. I, I, I can admire it. I can't always put it into practice. So, so she also was really good about making sure that we had debate, but knowing when to cut it off okay. and make the decision. And, and she also never made us have business breakfasts or business dinners. It was such, (laughs) (laughs) like, you were at work, at work, and then you could have a life outside. It was like, it was wonderful. It was totally great. Well, that's, that's what my wife said after she started having kids when she was at a law firm is that the, the men would want to screw around and the women didn't have kids. And yeah, then, but yeah, once I you had kids, you just actually waste. had to be efficient. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So I, I think it's 7 o'clock, and, and I believe on ending on time, that's the only lesson I've learned in teaching that works. <laughs> I want to thank Kim Scott for her wonderful ideas, her great energy, and for cranking up the audience at IDEO. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Designing Organizational Change Project. Friction is produced by Eli Shell and Rachel Jilkowski. Michael Pena and Monica Yort are the outreach team. Daniel Stusi is our designer. Sarah Khan and Devor Sankovic provide web support. And now, 
the final tangent. I, I, one time I gave the Radical Candor talk and somebody tweeted at me afterwards, tried Radical Candor on my boss, got fired. I was like, oh no! <laughs> what can, how can I help? And this person said, oh, I got another job. I'm better off. Thank you. So it all's well that ends well. Well, 